Welcome to Library Safety and Security Podcast with Dr. Steve Albrecht. I'm the very same Dr. Steve Albrecht, and this podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargaden. My topic for this half hour is a troubling one, domestic violence in the library workspace. Domestic violence sometimes happens as employees cross over from home to work with their personal issues, and more commonly when perpetrators of domestic violence come into the library with their victims or the victims come in by themselves. We'll talk about what we can do to support victims getting some help. We'll talk about the National Domestic Violence Hotline. We'll talk about some of the concerns that that employers may have in getting into the private life or the personal life of an employee Library leaders have the right to get into these situations when it affects the safety and security of everybody. We want to do it with confidentiality. We want to do it with some discretion and concern and confidentiality for the parties involved. But we also have a safety issue, making sure that that uh, we have set up the environment that the employee can feel safe at work. This may mean moving the employee to another facility, moving the employee to a different branch, putting the employee in the back office instead of in the front area where the perpetrator may not see him or her. We know domestic violence crosses sexual lines in terms of gender. It can happen same-sex sexual orientation. It can happen boyfriend-girlfriend. I've seen it in teenagers as young as 12 and 13. I've seen it in all types of situations where, as a domestic violence detective with the PD in San Diego, I handled 1,500 cases in the six years that I was there. And it is certainly a concern to me that we think about what domestic violence means in our culture. In terms of advocacy for domestic violence victims as employees, we have a number of resources. It could be the human rights, human resources that help explain what the employee's rights are in these situations. It could be the library director. It could be uh, the police department. They have domestic violence units sometimes and domestic violence investigators. We certainly also have domestic violence advocacy groups in many communities uh, connected to the social workers that come from the county or as part of a grant-funded program. Uh, we also have victim witness funds that are connected to the DA's office. Or their, um, people that are involved in domestic violence situations can get help and support and salary reimbursement and things like that if they have to miss time for work. So we'll talk about a number of those, uh, and those responses. We also have the Employee Assistance Program that helps as a counseling service for employees that are facing this type of issue. Certainly the uh, therapists involved in employee assistance or EAP programs have an understanding of this concern and can redirect the person who's scared and fearful and anxious, certainly for their safety and for their life, life of their kids if they have them, or life of their pets even, vandalism to their property, all things that we have seen in the domestic violence arena. Uh, as background, I spent six years in the domestic violence unit in San Diego Police Department. We were one of the first uh, PDs in the country to create a domestic violence unit. That happened back in 1993. I worked there until 99, and I handled 1,500 cases in that time span. Most domestic violence victims work. 85% of the cases involve people who are crossing over with their personal life issues from home to work, and they have concerns, obviously, about not getting fired. One of the tragedies connected to this subject, obviously besides the loss of life and the injury to people involved with it, is the fact that in many states, being a domestic violence victim is not a protected class. Where I came from in California, it is a protected class. And the idea that if you are a domestic violence victim and you notify your boss or you notify HR, you cannot be fired for that reason. Unfortunately, that is not the requirement in a number of other states. I think it's probably less than 10 states in the United States have that same criteria. When you look at other states 
where the penalty for reporting a home domestic violence issue, which has crossed over to work or could cross over to work, is to be fired. Uh, there's no secret or no surprise that domestic violence victims are afraid to do that and put their job at risk. Sometimes we only discover it once the perpetrator shows up, and then sometimes the results are tragic. If there is one phrase that we could connect to domestic violence and every woman on the planet, including my daughter, has uh, knowledge of, either I've heard about it or heard about it with their friends or experienced it themselves, is if I can't have you, nobody else can. As a workplace violence perpetra perpetrator, these guys can be wicked dangerous. They come into a workplace and they injure or kill the woman or the man that they use, used to love and that they had a relationship with and they broke up and their revenge is to take their life. And sometimes they take their life after they've taken the life of the person uh, in the situation. So we have oftentimes murder-suicide situations for the police to respond to. So this idea of I can't have you, nobody else can is a real warning sign to me as an investigator of these types of cases to say what is the relationship between the victim and the suspect. So I guess the good news is the times that we see the least likelihood of violence where violence is not usually possible or likely is when there is a dating relationship that not become a sexual relationship or a cohabitation relationship or a, or a live-in boyfriend-girlfriend type of an issue with a, with a, a child that, that both people had together. When we have kind of a dating relationship, Starbucks, you know, we went for drinks once and it didn't work out, but this person continues to bother me. It's much less likely to have violence connected to that situation as opposed to parents of a child together, cohabitants together, um, had a sexual relationship. So I always ask in my threat assessment cases, what's the nature of your interaction with this person? And, and it's a difficult question to, to ask, but from a, from a personal level, you know, did you have a sexual relationship with this person? If the answer is no, I'm much more relieved perhaps and I, I'm, although I'm careful for the, to protect the victim and make sure he or she is safe, I'm also concerned less than I am in a situation where this person says, yes, we had a sexual relationship, we went for five years, and we ended it and ended badly. There's much more likelihood of this violence connected to if I can't have you, nobody else can. So some examples of domestic violence in the workplace is a boyfriend-girlfriend situation, which has ended badly. The person begins a pattern or a campaign of phone calls, visits to the library. Uh, they may encounter the library employee in the parking lot. They may have an encounter with them off the job, which crosses over to work in terms of, of emails to their, to their facility, the phone calls, the harassing phone calls, the threatening phone calls, things like that showing up at the facility at different times in order to intimidate or, or harass or threaten or frighten the employee. Those are all possibilities. The other one that's kind of on the other end of the spectrum is when the, the patron has a domestic violence issue. And there we see patrons coming in, and they may see the library as kind of a safe refuge, uh, maybe a way for them to get out of the house for a span of time when they're away from their, their, um, uh, the aggressor, the person that's a domestic violence perpetrator against them. That makes perfect sense. You may have even a more complex and, and difficult and tense situation when the victim and the perpetrator show up at the library together. Some staff members may have a personal relationship with the patron or at least knowledge of the patron's backstory and background as to the domestic violence concerns, and they're concerned for this person's safety when the perpetrator is with them. One of the really great ideas that I think we take from the human trafficking prevention uh, concern is we see, and I've also seen this at hospitals as well, we see uh, brochures and posters and hotline information and business cards 
left inside the restrooms, especially the women's restroom in, in uh, airports and in, in the libraries and in hospitals that help women who are involved in domestic violence situations get access to hotline information and, and to counseling and support so that they can get away from their attackers, get away from these people. It's really a complex issue because the person on the receiving end of the domestic violence is obviously fearful for their life, but they're fearful of their kids or their pets or their belongings, all these things together. The perpetrator may have financial hold over them, economic control, which makes it very difficult for this person to leave. They may live together. This person may have control of the victim's credit cards and car keys and things like that. I've seen, you know, where the perpetrator drops the library employee off at the library, picks them up at, you know, at quitting time and really has quite a tight hold over this person. There's a fear there that the person is not going to be able to get away. There's also the reality in the domestic violence world that the most dangerous time to the victim is when he or she tries to leave for the final time. So we see people leaving three, four, five, and six times. And oftentimes when I teach classes on this subject, to first responders or to fire paramedics, to medical professionals, to cops and lawyers and doctors often say the same thing, which is stop asking that question is, why doesn't this person just leave? One of the reasons why that question is so wrong and so difficult to answer is it's not that easy to leave. It's complicated to pack up your kids and your pets and your belongings, especially at a moment's notice and go to some place that you had to have arranged or set up in advance before you get to that place, it's not like you can go to a shelter. They're oftentimes full. Uh, many of these domestic violence victims try to go to a hotel. They can't get in with, with pets, and, and they're not going to leave all their belongings in their car overnight. It's really a complex issue. So when I talk to first responders and people that, that, that manage these types of cases, especially when they don't have a lot of knowledge about them, I just say, stop saying, why doesn't this person just leave? It's obvious to all of us that they want to be out of a situation where they feel threatened or in danger, but it's not always easy for them to do it, and that's why we have to have a plan. When I look at what happens in the workplace, one of the most common things that I see is that supervisors are afraid to intervene in these situations, even when they have full knowledge of them, because they feel that the employee has the right to a personal life. I agree to that, but when the safety and security of everybody, including the employees, is at risk, then we see uh, an issue where the supervisors and, and doing it as a team have to get in involved. This would involve the library director, library supervisors, managers, employee assistance program, human resources function in the library, and perhaps other outside resources like social workers or employee assistance program or sometimes even the police. The purpose of a plan is to help this person finally make a getaway from these situations where they can do it safely and effectively and not have to worry about being injured or killed. Uh, sometimes people participate in their own demise, unfortunately, by going back to the perpetrator over and over again. Sometimes there's so much enabling and codependent behavior there that they oftentimes put their lives at risk, even for this person who has injured them severely, killed their pets, injured their kids, etc. It's really a, uh, an emotional uh, break that sometimes they're not even ready to do, even under those types of circumstances. So when we look at the workplace, in my perfect world, we would have statutory language in all 50 states that would say, if you're an employee and you have a domestic violence situation and it affects work and you go to your employer with that concern and say, I need some help or I need some time off or I need access to help or I need time off to get a restraining order or go to a court hearing or go to a medical, medical treatment, something like that, the answer should not be, well, we're just going to fire this person. When I look at domestic violence as a, as a serious concern, especially as the years go by in the, in the COVID virus thing here, as we, we come along into you know, six months of, of COVID virus in 2020, 
we see a lot of stories and incidents where people are trapped at home in small apartments and mobile homes and houses and condos and, and apartments with the perpetrator. And the volatility of those situations is quite intense and these people are oftentimes quite at risk for their health and safety. One of the issues that we see connected to domestic violence is a new focus and a new emphasis by law enforcement and medical professionals on choking. This is a serious, serious issue where victims are choked, have a 750% chance of being killed later on. So choking as a domestic violence hazard to the victim is something that we really look at as a potential for homicide later on. We're seeing new training programs aimed at law enforcement and first responders, medical professionals, nurses, doctors, paramedics, connected to this idea of looking for the warning signs of choking. Uh, they're not always very obvious. Sometimes the victim does not have obvious uh, medical injuries that can be seen right away. They show up at the second or third day sometimes. But being choked is a big risk factor. And I oftentimes ask that on my investigations whether or not this person has been choked by their, by their domestic violence perpetrator. And when we see that, we want to take immediate steps to get law enforcement involved because some of these cases can turn out to be attempted murder or even murder. So I guess the biggest challenge for when we work with patrons is we're not prying into their personal life, but sometimes I've talked to lots of library people who have good affinity and rapport and alignment and connection with domestic violence victims and are able to help them in situations where they can provide resources this person may not have known about. The easiest way for this to happen is when the victim comes in by himself or herself into the library and the library employee who has built this rapport, who has this person's confidence and can speak to them confidentially, can say, hey, I'm concerned about you and concerned about your safety. I've put together some resources that you can leave here or I can keep for you or we can just discuss here that you don't have to take home with you, but may be very useful for getting you out of a situation where your health and your safety and your life is at risk. So when I look at the the need to get involved in these situations it's a humane thing to do but it's also a balanced thing so we make sure that we're not getting overly involved and in putting the library employee at risk so oftentimes the best approach to these situations is a group a group discussion with your supervisor with your library leader with human resources with other stakeholders maybe domestic violence victim advocacy groups shelter groups uh, county ser social services or county domestic violence services to get a plan together for this individual employee. We can only do what we can do when it comes to helping people save themselves from these dangerous and emotional situations. So it's easy to feel guilty and angry that sometimes these victims don't take all the help and resources we provide to them because they feel trapped. There's an emotionality connected to the issue and they oftentimes don't know what to do until it's really quite serious and severe. When we look at employee behavior, in the workplace. Domestic violence affects people who are victims by creating situations where they feel depressed and anxious and fearful. Their work productivity goes down, their performance goes down, their morale goes down. Uh, they may be startled by loud noises. They may come to work with bruising on their bodies and faces and things like that. They may feel um, quite anxious around other people and especially uh, males and things like that where there's a, a reminder of what's going on at home. As a, an employee, if you suspect domestic violence in uh, an employee that you work with, you have to have the courage, I believe, with a capital C to make careful inquiries into this person's situation and say, hey, we have some resources available for you. I'm not interested in all your personal life details if you don't want to tell me, but we have some things that may be able to help you. And, and can I go with you to our boss? 
can I go with you to our human resources function and talk about it? Can I can I tell you about what we can do if I've been through uh, uh, employee assistance program counseling service? Can I tell you how that worked for me? Can I get you some help in some of these situations where you may not know what the resources are, and I know you want to be confidential and 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 but what really people want is the absence of the problem. And the only way to get the absence of the problem is to put some direct energy and effort towards solving the problem. And that may mean lots of things have to happen where the person gets out of the living conditions that they're in and the perpetrator gets arrested. Back in the 80s, the city of Duluth, Minnesota created something called the Duluth Model, which was really landscape groundbreaking for the landscape and law enforcement, which is they started arresting domestic violence perpetrators instead of doing the old thing, which they used to do. And I did it in my day before the Duluth model happened because I worked in the 80s as well, was to show up and all right, say, OK, you know, we have a male female situation. We make the guy leave and we, we call the victim's sister or his cousin or something to come over and stay with her. But there are no consequences for that behavior. The Duluth model says if you see visible injuries on the victim, then the perpetrator goes to jail. And that was a big sea change that we made in San Diego where we took these guys to jail as soon as we got there and saw even just a grab mark on the victim's arm. We now have domestic violence statutory language, which includes how we recover and remove from the house all the firearms. This is relatively new. In days of old, we didn't take the guns out of the house, which was a mistake. And now law enforcement routinely takes guns out of the house, and we also get gun violence restraining orders against people, especially after they've been convicted of injury, battery, or domestic violence type crimes. So the police aren't the only response to domestic violence, but they're an important one because they enforce con consequences. In the old days, we used to say stupid stuff like to the, when the child was standing there, um, you know, uh, little Johnny, your daddy has to come with us. He may be gone for a day or two, but don't worry about it. He'll be back and, you know, just go, go be with your mom. That was the dumb stuff we said back in the day. Now we say, you know, little Johnny, the reason that we're here is your dad hit your mom or your dad injured your mom, and it's not right, and he's going to jail for it. And the reason we do that in front of kids, even small kids, is to start to enforce this sense of consequences to this behavior so we do not create this pattern or this cycle that happens in domestic violence where where the, the children of, of uh, victims think that it's no big deal or that's just how mom is or that's just how dad is in these situations. We want to enforce consequences and break that cycle of domestic violence as it can sometimes go and instant, you know, inside families for generations. One of the things to think about for domestic violence as a concept is what Dr. Lenore Walker created, the, what she called the domestic violence cycle. And the cycle has three parts, and the, unfortunately, the parts repeat themselves. And her cycle, as she created it, was, I think, way back in the late 70s, early 80s that she created this concept, is there is tension in the domestic violence relationship between the perpetrator and the victim. There is an act of violence, and then there is remorse on the part of the perpetrator. And the interesting part about this, and the reason the cycle repeats itself, is when the victim is in the honeymoon stage or the remorse stage, this is when the perpetrator says, baby, I'll never do this again, or I bought you some flowers, or I bought you some jewelry. Please don't, don't break up with me. I'll never do this again. This, this perpetrator is actually a decent human being to get along with. The problem is the movement between the remorse period and the tension period can start right back up again. So the tension period of the, of the domestic violence cycle, Lenore Walker's cycle, could be weeks, months, or even years. In a lot of really volatile relationships, it's, it's sometimes weeks. This person builds and builds 
their anger towards the victim. The victim does something harmless or innocuous, and then the perpetrator lashes out and injures them. They've, they've gone to the second phase of the cycle, and then the third phase back to the honeymoon stage again. So you hear women say in these relationships, you know, when, during the honeymoon stage, when he's nice to me, he, he's the man that I love and the man that I originally wanted to marry. It's all the other times when this thing goes over again, back and around, once more through the cycle and once more through the cycle, which is so difficult for the victim. So if we look at domestic violence response in the United States, one of the language, key, key phrases of the language we oftentimes see is breaking that cycle, breaking Lenora Walker's cycle of domestic violence, tension, violence, remorse, or tens, tension, violence, and then this honeymoon period. So it's pretty predictable in domestic violence relationships where this has happened once is going to happen again. And for all the times that the perpetrator said, I'll, I'll never do this again and don't leave me, et cetera, et cetera, the, the, the energy starts back up again into the tension, then the violence, and then, and then we're back to the honeymoon stage. The problem with that cycle, the, the, besides just the fact that the victim gets injured or terrorized, is sometimes the victim also gets killed. So when we talk about breaking the cycle, that's one of the most important parts of it is, is, is taking people out of those situations where this thing happens over and over and over again. Connected to the issue of domestic violence in the workplace, either as an employee or as a patron coming in into the library, would be restraining orders. Sometimes it is possible that an employee will have a restraining order against his or her boyfriend or, or spouse or partner, and as a result, sometimes the only time we hear about the, the past domestic violence situation is when the perpetrator shows up and violates the order. Temporary restraining orders, stay away orders, civil orders, things like that. Um, a couple of factors have to be in place before they are useful. One is that they have to be served to the perpetrator. So the perpetrator has to get a copy of the stay away order. The restrained person has to get a copy of the order. And the second is it has to be filed with the court. So the way this usually works is that there is a domestic violence restraining order hearing. Both parties come forward. In my experience, oftentimes the, uh, the, the male party, the, the batterer, does not come to the hearing. Oftentimes the judge will grant it based on a police report or in talking to the victim or the victim's attorney. Um, many times in these situations, we, they can find a legal help through legal aid or they can get uh, attorneys to do pro bono work for them in these situations or they can represent themselves in the hearing. Once the restrained party has been served, then any violation of the order is typically a misdemeanor which they can be arrested for at the scene. Well, here's the problem. Sometimes the perpetrator will call up and say, baby, I got coffee and donuts. I'd like to sit in the car with you and talk about our relationship. And the victim says, no, no, we have a restraining order. You can't come near me, and you're not even supposed to be calling me. And he says, I, I promise I'll be on my best behavior. Let's just talk in the, in, the in the parking lot in the car. So she reluctantly agrees to talk in the parking lot. She comes out of the library, goes and sits in the car with the guy. It goes badly. She's fearful. She runs inside. She calls the police. The police come. He's standing there, and he says, hey, she invited me. You know, we're just sitting here having coffee, and, you know, I thought this was uh, no big deal, a mutual discussion. And what do you think the police do? They arrest the guy. They arrest him for violation of the order because the judge told him not to sit in the car with that woman. And if she wants to stop the restraining order, she has to go back to court to make that happen. A couple problems with restraining orders. One, it's not a bulletproof shield. We know that. Two, sometimes the person, whether it's a patron or an employee, does not do their best to enforce the order. So anytime this person is contacted over the phone, face-to-face, -face, in the parking lot, at work, over the counter, by telephone, by text message, by email, by any other means necessary where this person is not allowed to contact them, he or she should make a phone call to the police to enforce the restraining order violation. Oftentimes people don't do that until it's like nine or ten times, and then oftentimes 
the police sometimes are kind of lackluster or not sort of haphazard in their response to these things. They may not have as much energy about a restraining order call as some other type of real felony call. This is a mistake on the part of the police because their job is to enforce these orders. And these felony calls sometimes turn into murder calls because the restraining order violation has turned into a homicide scene. So when I train police all the time, I say, look for the perpetrator en route to the call, try to catch this person at the scene and, and arrest him, and go back and, and do follow-ups and see if you can get this, this person in, in handcuffs as a result of the restraining order violation, even a couple days afterwards, because there's so much emotionality connected to these situations. If we switch over to a patron who has a restraining order against somebody and you happen to know about it as a library employee because you built rapport with that person, it is possible that the perpetrator would show up at the library, in which case you can call the police and say, hey, we have a domestic violence situation here and we're worried about this, this person's safety. Get over here. We know that there's a restraining order in place. If the cops can get there in, in time to catch the perpetrator and detain him, they will look to see whether the order has been served, whether the order is on file with the court, and they'll make the arrest for the restraining order violation. <clears throat> Sometimes there is a problem with the restraining orders where someone will say, you know, this is just going to make the person matter. And my, my answer to that is I get it, but I also want to have consequences of this person's behavior. It's just a piece of paper, true, but you can go to jail based on this piece of paper. So the idea that, that you know, I don't want to make the situation worse is certainly understandable, but we have to have some teeth, some consequences for the behavior. And oftentimes the restraining order with a person sitting in jail can give the victim time to gather his or her things and, and move to another location and get into a safer space. One of the best resources for library people to keep at hand for any type of situation connected to domestic violence is the National Domestic Violence Hotline number. That number is 800-799-7233, 800-799-7233. If you Google National Domestic Violence Hotline, you'll see the webpage for this service, and it's a 24-7 operation which has helped save the number of lives from people who have called in domestic violence situations around the country. When we look at domestic violence as one of those social issues that we need to work harder on, I'm concerned that, that uh, we're not doing as much as we can. This subject tends to ebb and flow in terms of the intensity. It's oftentimes based on national events. I recall a shooting at a hospital several years ago where the perpetrator was an ex-boyfriend, came in and shot one of the emergency room doctors and killed her and then killed himself. So these things are quite common in our workplaces and in our society. Victims fear the consequences of letting their boss find out about these things if it's an employee situation. Uh, people who come into the library as patrons may be fearful about talking with you about the situation because they're fearful of, of the perpetrator finding out. I get all that. These things have to be managed carefully with tact and discretion and confidentiality. But you think about some of the warning signs that we see and miss or some of the times we rationalize the behavior of the perpetrator and saying, well, it's none of our business. Domestic violence is a national problem, and we need to address it. So my thanks to the producer of the Library Safety and Security Podcast, Steve Hargadon. For more information, visit the Library 2.0 website at library20.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Steve Albrecht, and thanks for listening to the Library Safety and Security Podcast.